According to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, following. Then Peter approached him with the question, Master, how many times can my brother wrong me and I must forgive him? Would seven times be enough? No, replied Jesus, not seven times, but seventy times seven. For the kingdom of heaven is like a king who decided to settle his accounts with his servants. When he had started calling in his accounts, a man was brought to him who owed him millions of dollars. And when it was plain that he had no means of repaying the debt, his master gave orders for him to be sold as a slave and his wife and children and all his possessions as well, and that the money be paid. At this the servant fell down on his knees before his master. All be patient with me, master, he cried, and I will pay you back every penny. Then his master was moved with pity for him, and he set him free, and he canceled the entire debt. But when this same servant had left his master's presence, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him only a few dollars. He grabbed him and seized him by the throat, crying, pay up what you owe me. At this his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, oh, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. And he went out and had him put in prison until he should repay the debt entirely. When the other fellow servants saw what had happened, they were horrified. And they went and told their master the whole story. Then his master called that servant in and said to him, You wicked servant! Did I not cancel all that debt when you begged me to do so? Should you not have taken pity on your fellow servant as I, your master, took pity on you? And his master in anger handed him over to the jailers till he should repay the whole debt. This said Jesus is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. May God bless to our understanding and our will to live up to it, this part of his word. And we have had an interruption into our study of the Lord's Prayer, but we come back to it today. Let me just say, because so many of you are visitors and you're coming into Montreat and hitting this sort of in the midst of the series, uh, that the Lord's Prayer is one of those things which we so often take for granted that we think that we know it when really we haven't thought through the great implications of the words that we're saying. I remember reading somewhere uh, about some little boy uh, whose father started listening carefully to him when he was trying to say the Lord's Prayer. He was just a little kid, so he can write it off at that. But he started it off, Hello, Ed be thy name. Hello, Ed, be thy name. Or I heard about a little girl who uh, started it, Our 
Father who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. But worst of all was a little girl up in New York, where it's easy to get confused, uh, <laughs> who got to the petition in the Lord's Prayer and said, lead us not into Penn Station. <laughs> well, these little testimonies are meant to tell you that we sometimes pray the Lord's Prayer without really uh, understanding what we are saying. Uh, Jesus, first of all, was really shocking to his disciples when he introduced this pattern of prayer. He was praying in a certain place, and one of them overheard him pray. And when he used the word Abba for Father, this was an intimacy to which an Old Testament Jew would have been a little bit shocked by. Because always in the Old Testament the name of God is held in such utter reverence, and in the New Testament too, and we should hold it in reverence also. But here our Lord Jesus introduces us into a new intimacy and a new fellowship with God. And we can come because he's made the way for us, this new and living and wonderful way. The word Father for God in the Old Testament may be spoken as the Father of Israel, the whole people, but not used as Father over an individual such as Jesus brings it here in this intimate and personal way. So we may call him Father. And really prayer is conversation with the Father. We have thought about four of the petitions. Hallowed be thy name. What's in a name? It's more than just a device for the postman to look at. But the Bible takes names very seriously. And so the name of God is to be taken seriously. And we are to live in such a way that our lives bring honor to the name of God. So let our lips and lives confess the holy gospel we profess. We can live in such a way that our very lives deny the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ. They speak in ways that remind us of what one great thinker in America said, what you are speaks so loud I can't hear what you say. John Huffman recorded some words from several of his parishioners in counseling situations. She said, certainly I'm a Christian, but you don't mean that I have to live by that outdated, old-fashioned morality of the Bible. After all, this is the day of the pill. He tells of another counselee who said, I'm a Christian, but little white lies never hurt. In fact, they're the Christian thing to do. They keep people from being hurt. Another counselee said, I'm a Christian, but I can best worship God in nature, and it's not necessary for me to go to church. He said, I'm a Christian, but I don't have time to tithe. What I do with my money is my own business. This thing of tithing, which you preach about, is simply your way of raising a budget for the church. Another counselee said, I'm a Christian. Oh, I don't believe that Jesus was God but I do believe in following his example. Well, that's just how far off base you can be. If we own his name and sign, it is not cheap grace, 
But when we are called by his name, it means that we belong to him, are accountable to him and responsible to him. We pray for the coming of his kingdom. We're not asking that our name be honored. Any honor that comes to any of us, we gladly place at the feet of the only one to whom they belong, and that is to the Lord Jesus. Any good that comes from us, the gracious work of the Holy Spirit has produced it. And we need to be careful to see that the glory is always going where it ought to go, and that's to the Lord. We pray in the second petition, thy kingdom come. And that's not some politician's paradise or some super welfare state that's being ushered in. It's not any particular political party, but it's God's reign over our minds and hearts and lives in the places where it really hurts to give up and to let go and to let him be God. And when we pray that, we're assuming a great responsibility. The third petition, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just as in heaven his will is in done, his will is done, so we are to do his will on earth. And the question comes quickly, what is his will? His will is what pleases God. And what is it that Christ told us? It's health, not disease. It's service, not selfishness. It's giving, not grabbing. It's loving, not hating. It's the golden rule, not hate, like the jungle. In God's heaven, it's always so. And we're praying that that may be the way it is with us here on this earth. Fourth was the last petition we looked at, give us this day our daily bread. That teaches us that we are utterly dependent upon God. Dependent upon God not just for the bread which we eat, which sustains us, but for all those things which are necessary for our life. And when we recognize our dependence upon Him, we've come a long, long way in seeing our true value and worth. Last night I spoke with my psychiatrist friend, Dr. Bill Griffin, who was out here the other night at that uh, dinner. We were speaking about someone I had referred to him for counseling, a person who, had, who is not a member of this congregation or of this city or even this county, but a person who had come to me who has been terribly crippled by a very poor image of her own value and worth. And he said to me last night on the phone, he said, you know, this is the most difficult thing in all the world to practically to erase. Whatever you do when you're raising your children, show them that you love them. Hug them. Show them that they're worth. They're worth much to God, and God causes them their meaning to mean something to us. Last Sunday when Lee Newell Irvin presented her child here for Christian baptism, she was asking that the seal of God be placed upon that child. 
And it means that that child's worth comes more than just from the love of the parents, but the worth of that baby, and that includes the unborn babies that are murdered through abortion. That baby's worth comes from God, the creator and the giver and the sustainer of life. He is concerned about those who are weakest, and he cares. When that baby receives that sign and seal of baptism, it shows that he is not our possession, but that he or she belongs to God, and we have stewardship over that precious life, and one day we go back to God to give an account for that stewardship. And then we come today to this petition. If there are people who say, well, praying for daily bread, we've got so much to eat, and we have so much of this world's goods, how practical is it there? Well, it's for all that sustains us. But it's interesting to me that Following the petition for daily bread comes the petition for the forgiveness of sins. The only answer to guilt is grace. Is there anyone here who does not feel that you need forgiveness? All of us know deep down in our souls that we need to be forgiven. And it's important for us to understand that. The God who touched us and created us and made us a living soul. In that great painting in the Sistine Chapel in the creation, when God touches the, the finger of Adam and he becomes a living soul, that brings dignity and worth to life. And here... Our dignity and our worth comes from the fact that we need to be forgiven and God has made provision for that pardon from our sins, which every single one of us need. He brings to us forgiveness through his Son. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What a tremendous and terrifying petition that is, as we forgive our debtors. And then how he emphasized it in what I read to you from Philip's translation, how Jesus told that story, that we who come to God and ask him to forgive us cannot withhold forgiveness from someone who has sinned against us. There is a condition placed here on receiving forgiveness. And that condition means that we also forgive. Now God speaks to us out of his love and out of his grace. Grace always comes before ethics. Ethics are rules that we live by. When the Ten Commandments were delivered at Mount Sinai, before God said to Israel, Israel, be good. He said to them, first of all, Israel, remember, I brought you out of the land of bondage in Egypt. Now be good. 
And he gives those commandments. And so he does not ask us to give until we ourselves have been forgiven. And then when we know the forgiving, amazing grace of God that cleanses us from our sins, then it is that we can extend his grace to someone else. I read a story of, a, of an Armenian brother and sister who during the atrocities in the 1920s when the Turks were slaughtering the Armenians, there was this brother and sister who were trying to escape from a Turkish soldier. He caught them and ran them into an alleyway and with his huge sword slashed the brother to death. And while his bloody work was being carried out, the sister was able to scamper into a shadow and climb up over a fence and escape. And because she was a medically trained nurse, the Turkish army commandeered her services and impressed her into service in one of their hospitals. And one day in taking care of the wounded, miserably pain-ridden soldiers, she came face to face with the man who slaughtered her brother. She looked at him and she knew that the slightest inattention to him in his weakened condition would result in his death. But she nursed him just as carefully as she knew how. And when he began to gain strength again, and his eyes could focus, and he watched her, and then he got to where he could speak, he too recognized her. And he said to her, how can you do what you have done for me when I killed your brother? And she said, the God whom I know is a God of love. And his son taught me to love even my enemies. And the soldier looked back to her and said, tell me about him. I want him to be my God too. That's where forgiveness costs. It's easy to forgive when the wrong is not great. But when the wrong is great, it's hard to forgive. It means that we have to die to self. Die to self. And that death to self is not an easy thing to do. This is a book by C.S. Lewis that I highly recommend. You've heard of him before, <laughs> if you're in the Montreat congregation. It's called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. And in his Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, when he comes to the petition, Forgive us as we forgive, he writes, Unfortunately, there is no need to do any festooning here. That is, to overplay it. To forgive for the moment is not difficult. 
But to go on forgiving and to forgive the same offense again every time it reoccurs to the memory, that's the real test. My resource is to look for some action of my own which is open to the same charge as the one I resent. If I still smart to remember how so-and-so let me down, then I must still remember how I let someone down. And if I find it difficult to forgive those who bullied me at school, let me, at that very moment, remember and pray for those I bullied. Not that we called it bullying, of course. That's where prayer without words can be so useful. In it, there are no names and there are no aliases. That means we have to be rigorously honest before God when we seek that type of forgiveness. Now, this is not a bargain in which we say to God, now look, God, we're going to make a deal. A lot of people have certainly done me wrong. They've talked about me, and they've said all these ugly things. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let them go free, and then you forgive me for everything I've done. It's not a bargain. The word for forgive, the word for prayer in Greek is an interesting word. It's prosukomai, uh, evoke. Uh, it means that we, God is reaching out to us, and we are reaching out to him. And when he reaches out to us and we reach out to him, then he can help us. When we know we're forgiven, we're not making a bargain with God. If he does this, we do that. It's because he has forgiven us that we have the forgiveness that goes on. There's always that little bit in us that makes us want to make deals with God. How many times have there been people who have been sick? And while they were lying there on the bed of affliction, and I can tell you I've been in that position, you want to say, look, Lord, if you'll just take this pain away, if you'll just get me through this, I'm going to do this when I get well, I'm going to do that when I get well. And we start trying to bargain. But that's not prayer. That's not prayer. And even though I have to repeat it, let me repeat this story as quickly as I can. C.S. Lewis wrote his best books after he was 50 years old. And amongst those books were those Chronicles of Narnia, children's books. And if you begin to read them, in, and even if you're entering into your second childhood, you'll get blessed by reading them. Uh, there is one called The Magician's Nephew. And in it, there's a little boy by the name of Diggory. And Diggory has a great horse by the name of Strawberry. And he is in the wonderful land of Narnia, where Aslan, the great lion, is the Christ figure. Now, he has gone through the magic wardrobe and come out into Narnia. And Diggory is being commissioned by Aslan to go on a tremendous assignment. But all the while, he's thinking about his mother, whom he's left back in England. He does not know what those of us who read the books know, that time in Narnia does not take away from time in England. But he's worried about his mother who has cancer and is dying. And so when Aslan, who represents Christ, 
the huge lion Aslan, tells Diggory that he is to go on this important mission. Diggory is listening, but in the back of his mind, he's thinking about his mother and that he'll be gone so long he'll never see her alive again and that she will die while he's away. And he has a fleeting thought that he wants to make a bargain with Aslan, who is Christ. He wants to say, I'll do this if you'll heal my mother. But he realizes that he's not the sort of person you can bargain with. And do you know what he does? Just before he leaves, Lewis in the book says that he blurts out, Oh, Aslan, Aslan, if you can, will you cure my mother? He had been looking at the big claws on Aslan's huge paws and how powerful he was. And then he felt Aslan's breath and he looked up and saw his own eyes mirrored in huge tears that were in Aslan's eyes. And then the thought occurred to him that Aslan, who represents Christ, is really sorrier for his mother than he is himself. And those tears in Aslan's eyes keep reoccurring to Diggory as he goes on his mission later on. Remember, the one with whom we are dealing is one who loves us very, very greatly. And he has spoken to the deep needs of our hearts in this unusual way. And so then, we forgive, but not in a bargain way, and we forgive others. Someone I read about last week said of a certain person, he'll bury the hatchet all right, but he'll leave the handle sticking out of the ground. That's not forgiveness. It means that we let him go scot-free. And that's real forgiveness, just like God forgives us. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red, red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Just like Joseph, whose brothers had sold him into slavery, that Norman read about in our lesson from the Old Testament, they get forgiven. They get forgiven. They are worried after their father dies because they think when their father dies that surely Joseph is going to take vengeance on them. But he does not. He shows that his forgiveness is real and his forgiveness is true. The greatest thing that could come out of this service today would be for some person who knows that if he died this moment, he would not be right with God, would accept what God has done at the cross where he has exhausted himself in demonstrating his love. And that the one who tells us to forgive is one who was spat upon, lied about, called crazy, called unpatriotic, called in league with the devil, and nailed to a cross, and lifted up and ridiculed. And how did he treat those who did those things to him? He practiced what he preached. He said, Father, forgive them. And that's what we need to do.
to forgive from our hearts. Forgive the sins I have confessed to thee. Forgive the secret sins I do not see. That which I know not, Father, teach thou me. Help me to live. Only the Holy Spirit can help us to live in that way. Now let us...